It was just a split second, but it felt like a full long minute where I stared into the polar bear's eyes and then just pushed off on its hind legs and then took off. That's Suniva Sorby, polar explorer, co-founder of the Hearts in the Ice Project and our CGS fellow. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to our guest, a reminder that a subscription to one of the world's great nature and geography magazines is just a click away. For $28.50 a year, Canadian Geographic magazine brings you issue after issue of award-winning writing and photography about Canada, its people, landscape, wildlife, environment, and more. So please, subscribe by visiting cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. And now, on to Suniva Sorby. Throughout the pandemic, it's safe to say that most of us spent some time self-isolating, but not quite the way our guest today did. Explorer Suniva Sorby spent two long winters in an uninsulated trapper's hut on the Arctic island of Svalbard, halfway to the North Pole from Northern Norway. Along with her Norwegian colleague, Hilda Fallon-Strom, they set a record with their all-women project called Hearts in the Ice, doing scientific research for NASA, the Norwegian Polar Institute, amongst others, bringing attention to the massive impact climate change is having on our polar regions. And now they're about to do another Hearts in the Ice project, this time in the Canadian Arctic. Born in Norway and raised in Canada, Sunova has spent decades carrying out expeditions in the Arctic and especially the Antarctic. She was part of the first ever all-women team to journey to the South Pole. So Sunova Sorby, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you. What a pleasure to spend some time with you, David. Well, it's so great to have you here. And I have to say, so reading through all this, the research you did and the work you did with the, with the Hearts and the Ice Project, I keep going back in my mind to the fact that you're in an uninsulated trapper's hut for, for two winters on this island. I'm just wondering what that experience was like. Just how did you survive in that? That was a daily challenge, to be sure. Not only was it uninsulated, there were, depending on the prevailing winds, uh, usually from the from the east, they would come screaming through the wooden boards. Um, it was, uh, we had no running water, no insulation, so we just had to make sure we had enough, enough wood chopped up to keep the fire stoked. And that was a, something that started really early in the morning. Yeah, so I guess cast iron stove and, I mean, you're just layered up, I guess, is the, the survival. We're layered up. It took a few hours for the cabin to get warm enough um, to where we could actually sit outside of our our down comforters and, and do some work. Um, but, you know, we adapt. We are an amazing adaptable species, aren't we, us, us humans? And uh, we just find a way to put on more layers and just, just deal with it. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'd just like to get, go bigger picture a bit. So can we talk a bit about Svalbard and, you know, where is it and paint a picture of what the, like the view out your door was when you, and where you were working? Absolutely. So we were, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in an uninsulated trapper's cabin, uh, 140 kilometers south of the main settlement of Lungyadbien. There are 2,600 people that live in Lungyadbien. Um, and to get to us, there are two ways. One is by ship, which would be an overnight sail, take about 10 hours, uh, or with a snowmobile, which would take anywhere from about, depending on the conditions, and you're going over three glaciers, uh, five to eight hours, uh, and a pretty hairy snowmobile ride at that. So we were very remote, uh, and we were on the inside of what you call the Van Kulenfjord, um, 
uh, which was in South Spitsbergen National Park. Yeah. And so when you you wake up in the morning and you're walking out when you have sunshine, I guess, I mean, what are you seeing out that door? Yeah, it's uh, we have four tiny little windows, one to the north, one to the south, one to the east and one to the west, oddly enough. And the if you're looking out to the east, we we can see the fjord and the mountain ranges. And if we're looking out to the west, we just see um, barren tundra and uh, a little mountain range. And then uh, to the south, we're just looking at another mountain range and the edge of the Van Coolen Fjord. And then to the north, um, which is where my bed was, that was probably the most spectacular view um, out into the fjord, but also this majestic mountain range. Uh, it was in an absolutely spectacular area. We had uh, changing light, changing ice, and such a, a wide array of wildlife uh, daily. Wow. It's, can you talk a bit about the wildlife? I, mean, I guess that's polar bear country up there. Is that... Yes, it's polar bear country up there. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, it's not like uh, we put on some clothes and just go out for a little stroll. We, we layer up really well and go outside with a safety belt that had a revolver and a flare gun. Uh, and then we have a rifle over our shoulder because uh, we had in the 19 months we were there, we had over 100 polar bear encounters. And we had, you know, especially in the polar night, which lasts for for over three months, three and a half months. Um, that was a very interesting thing to be so remote, knowing that there are polar bears outside, but you just can't see them. Um, and we had, of course, really strong headlamps and could see the footprints. Yeah. Um, so we had to be really, really careful. But uh, we had foxes, we had ptarmigans, we had um, reindeer. Um, at one time we had about 28 reindeer that were just hanging out, um, not too far from, from the mm -hmm. cabin. Uh, and it just felt like such a privilege to be in one place, uh, stationary. Most of my expeditions have been about moving from point A to point B, but to actually step back in time and have an experience where you're, you're an observer, mm -hmm. um, not just through the data we're collecting, but through the wildlife observations and and seeing, you know, wildlife come back, uh, like teeming with life. Uh, this particular location is a very visited uh, stop for expedition cruise ships. And the fact that COVID hit and there was no cruise traffic, we were able to spend an entire summer, just the two of us, wow. at this location. It was otherworldly. Amazing. So in terms of just trying to like locate the island, like in terms of the Canadian North, what, what, what sort of parallels? Are we up by Ellesmere or what, what, what's the comparison? Uh, would be north of Ellesmere. Wow. So we were at 78 degrees north, wow. that far up. And um, of course, we know that the Arctic is warming. And now they say four times, but uh, three to four times faster than anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And so part of why we went, part of why we started Hearts in the Ice uh, and you mentioned this earlier, David, is I've spent a lot of time in the polar regions and Hilda has spent 27 years living in Svalbard. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we met, it was at an adventure travel trade show and we discovered that uh, we both have been fortunate to have, you know, our library be the outdoor, um, our outdoors. And um, we really wanted to do something about the very fact that climate change is impacting our entire world. So we quit our jobs uh, and started Hearts in the Ice, um, basically to serve as citizen scientists for the projects, some of them that you mentioned, and also to connect with kids around the world. So, I mean, I guess first, as you mentioned, the pandemic hit when, when you guys were up there. I mean, I, I'm just wondering how much of a pivot was that 
I mean, you, you wound up spending a whole extra winter up there. How, how challenging was that pivot? Wow, that's a really great question. It's I remember the day when we learned the word pandemic. Um, and we're on satellite internet up there, so we're not online per se. Um, we had no TV, no news. Um, but our social media contact up in Svalbard was sending little updates and we were just uh, so sad. Like it was, it was, we had, we were grief stricken, mm. no joke. Uh, just understanding that the whole world had just come to a full stop. Of course that was in March and we couldn't get a pickup to come in May uh, to collect us with our dog Etra, our four-year-old Malamute, mm. our solar panels and our windmill. And we had lots of barrels of gear and snowmobiles. And so we rode into town uh, in May of 2020 and collected more supplies, went out for the summer, and throughout the summer we were asking ourselves, what do we do? Uh, like everybody else, uh, we couldn't really move around anywhere, and where would I go? Would I come back to Canada? And, and, uh, and then what would we do? So we decided that our voice and our stories um, and our data collection, we were far more valuable going back to Bumsaboo. So it wasn't an easy decision, uh, simply because it meant leaving, you know, family and friends and everything. It's just, but on the other hand, it was uh, a very natural decision for the two of us. So we went back and as you said, we spent a full another, um, another winter there. So nine months turned into 19. Wow. I mean, kind of a gift in a way, really. Oh, we were living days in complete perfect stillness, which is a luxury for unfettered thought, so to speak. To sit in a space where we, we I love to write, uh, and we finished our book, Hearts in the nice. Ice, uh, that came out not that long ago. And it was just really interesting to be in a space where you weren't fed uh, information. It actually came from the deep well that we possess inside when we're either out in, in the wild somewhere um, or we're in a, just a place of, of quiet. So that was a real gift. Amazing. Uh, I mean, I love your descriptions of the wildlife and also the, the diversity of wildlife, which I think might surprise people that far north. I'm, I'm just curious about, to get into now more of your research and, and how climate is impacting not just the wildlife, but the landscape and everything you saw around you in those 19 months. We were collecting data for, uh, we were collecting phytoplankton, um, something you can't really see. And phytoplankton, uh, unbeknownst to me about five years ago, <laughs> uh, is responsible for something like 70% uh, of the oxygen in the atmosphere, more than a rainforest. Wow. So, and what happens with phytoplankton is they thrive in very dense salt water. So when the glaciers melt, they pour fresh water into the salt water and the phytoplankton don't mm -hmm. bloom. Uh, as much. So we were collecting phytoplankton for the Scripps Institute of Oceanography for a citizen science project called Fjord Phyto, which is typically done on expedition cruise mm -hmm. ships. Uh, and uh, Allison from Scripps is particularly interested in phytoplankton in the polar night. And believe it or not, she's still processing the data because of COVID, it's been difficult to get in the lab. We were also collecting, uh, we were doing pre-programmed drone flights for the British Columbia Institute of Technology, and it was infrared imagery to record changes in surface temperature over time and density. That was very interesting. We were recording cloud observations for NASA, aurora observations for NASA. We observed a rocket launch um, mm. for NASA, so they called us rocket citizen scientists. <laughs> That's a kind fun of a one, cool, yeah. cool title. <laughs> And then um, we were doing polar bear, polar bear observation for the Norwegian Polar Institute and 
had over a hundred of those and recording the wildlife, um, sort of the health of the species we were looking at. And when we saw, you know, dead reindeer, we came across five dead reindeer. It was like a little slaughter area and they were all killed by a polar bear wow. and we could see the tracks up. They would chase them. They would, polar bear would run up the hill and chase the reindeer down to where they were injured and just it was, they were looking for food. Huh, um, and then we were collecting plastic and, and marine debris, um, which has been washed up on the west coast of uh, Spitsbergen from mostly the maritime industry. And then taking ice core samples for the University Center of uh, Svalbard. And they were interested in the little mayo fauna that exist in the last one to three centimeters of the ice core, um, where they get their first stadium of life, so to speak. Wow. So it was very uh, deep learning curve for us, uh, just making sure we followed all the protocol. And, uh, and then we created story around what we were collecting and why it matters. And all, all of these projects are, are related. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's and there's. I mean, you guys are obviously very busy when you're up there. Uh, I mean, out of the, out of those projects, were there things that really struck you in terms of the climate, like oh, oh no, kind of moments? Yeah, when you when you ask me that, I just I think of how quickly the ice can can uh, move in and out. Mm. You know, we were looking out at a, a full fjord of ice last. Uh, it was on my birthday, actually. It was March seventeenth. And the University Center of Svalbard came with their snowmobiles and a couple of uh, field researchers to give us this unit that um, they drilled a, a hole in the ice and they dropped this little light sensor underneath the ice and they wanted us to collect it before um, the ice broke up. And I remember it was in the kitchen doing, doing dishes or cooking dinner. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm looking out the window to the east and all of a sudden you see the ice start to break up and then there's a lead and then there's another bigger lead. And we were like, you know what? Oh my, we, we have to get out there. So we put the skis on. It wasn't safe to go with a snowmobile and we took a sled and we went out uh, and rescued this little device because within a day, the ice completely went from a full fjord of uh, ice to an open fjord. Um, and it's the swell, it's the wind, and it was the perfect storm just to move everything out. And, you know, that can seem like a beautiful thing to witness, and it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we took time lapse of this. But, you know, the, everything is impacted by the ice. Um, the ice is like this great refrigerator and cooling system for the rest of the planet. It reflects everything. And so with the open fjord, uh, which they're seeing more of, you're, uh, we're losing that natural cooling system for the rest of the planet. The seals breed on ice. Uh, the polar bears feed off the seals, which are found on ice. So it's this, um, it really is a very interconnected web that we're witnessing up in the Arctic. And, you know, wildlife is one thing, but uh, as I've learned from having met uh, and feeling fortunate to have talked to um, Sila Watt-Cloutier, the author of uh, The Right to be Cold, you know, there's there's a human uh, aspect to climate change. Uh, we didn't have any neighbors, any human neighbors close to us at Bumsabu for 19 months, but the Arctic is a huge area, as we know, especially the Canadian Arctic. And we have um, the indigenous living across the land in Canada that are greatly impacted, um, and they have been for decades by changes in sea ice and uh, safety issues around fishing and hunting uh, and the food supply dwindling. So it's uh, we're trying to shine a light on, uh, you know, a greater area of the Arctic where where the people are actually living on the front lines. 
Yeah, no, I mean, such a huge challenge. And we're, I mean, we have to remember as humans, we're, we're in the food chain, right? And as the food chain collapses, it reaches us eventually, right? It's... Absolutely. And I mean, we can't explain the changes uh, that we've been experiencing without taking into account human impact, right? Um, so we all have a role to play, but as long as we can all try to be part of the solution. I have so many questions just about your own personal experience up there, too. I mean, uh, f first of all, I've never experienced, you, know, you had three, three months there, three and a half months of no sunlight, not seeing the sun. And I'm just wondering how, how that impacted you or how, what impacts you noticed on, on the two of you. Well, um, Hilda's had a polar night or two under yes, her belt that's already. Right. She's lived um, up there. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it, there's both a, it's almost like this you have permission to sort of retreat into your own little form of hibernation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and what that does to me on a spiritual level is, um, you know, all the unresolved, unrequited things inside you come screaming out, uh, whether or not you mm -hmm. like it. Um, uh, you get to find some really beautiful uh, way to, uh, to be at peace with yourself. Uh, your needs are lessened. It's just a quiet space to be in. Uh, on a physical level, it was really difficult because despite the fact that I took vitamin D drops, mm -hmm. probably double the dose that I was supposed to take, it still didn't work, <laughs> is, um, is it, you just feel like there's cloud hanging over your forehead and over the top of your eyes. And I just felt like I never fully woke up, you know, that I was in this sort of heavy state uh, which impacts you physically. So we made sure uh, to keep a routine. We trained six days a week. We did yoga six days a week, and we walked several times a day uh, in the polar night, not that far just because of polar bear danger. But we were really good about keeping a routine, and I think that's what saved me. Um, and then I came to enjoy a second, you know, long polar night that following winter. And it was just a very special experience, it's mostly impacted by the fact that uh, when it's dark, it's really dark, but you can you go outside all the time to check and see if the northern lights are oh, out there. Beautiful. And if the northern lights are out there, we are, we are getting dressed like firemen, <laughs> um, and we are putting all our, <laughs> we're putting all of our, um, our gear on and uh, dressing like Nanak of the North and then getting our camera equipment. We make sure we always have the extra batteries charged yeah. and they're in our pockets so they stay warm. And we're outside for hours taking pictures of the Northern Lights if they last for hours. And it's just, ah. Oh, Stunning. It's just really hard to describe that. Amazing. Wow. Wow. What a treat. Yeah. Um, and that first sunrise it would have been in what, March, I guess? That was in March, on March 9th, uh, the first year. And... Uh, what was that like? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting waiting for the sunrise. You know that it's going to come uh, and you can see hints of the light. But when mm. it finally appears uh, behind the mountain range and it, it casts that glow and this warmth, even though it's minus 20 mm. and it casts that warmth on you, you just feel like you've been showered with the best natural gift that Mother Nature could give you. <laughs> It was so amazing. I will never forget that. Wow. Wow. No, that sounds incredible. It was beautiful. I, I do want to go back to the polar bears, too. So 100 sightings. What was the closest one? Or were there a, was there a scary moment ever? 
The closest one was about a meter away from me. That's actually, that's very close. I was. Um, that's very very close. That's a that's a little bit too close. <laughs> I was I was closing. We have these really thick wooden shutters on the outside of those four windows, and they have nail spikes on the outside to prevent the polar bear from coming in. And we um, would close them every night. And so uh, I closed. Um, I was going outside to close those shutters and. For some reason, I just instinctively thought I should just turn the floodlights on both the north and south end of the cabin. Mm -hmm. And I did that, turned the lights on. So I was about to go outside, went back in, turned the lights on, and then I went back outside. And because I turned the lights on, I scared a polar bear who was right uh, to the right side of me. Uh, And he came screaming around the front, right, stopped right in front of the door. And it was just a split second, but it felt like a full long minute where I stared into the polar bear's eyes and then just pushed off on its hind legs and then took off. Wow. But it was a it was a moment of both awe and a little bit of fear. Yeah. Yeah. I've never <laughs> seen one up. I mean, other than in a zoo, which doesn't seem right. I've never seen one up close and it must be just incredible. I can imagine. They are amazing marine mammals, uh, and they are the iconic image, of course, of the of the of the Arctic. But uh there's so much more in the Arctic than, than just yeah. the wildlife. It's, it's just not one thing. It's many things to many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, beautiful. So there's a, there's a Canadian Arctic project coming up this fall. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit about that? That's is, right. Is, is it top yeah. secret still or are we, can we hear details? No, it's not top secret. <laughs> it's just it's a challenging project, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been back not even quite a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from the Arctic of Svalbard, and we have um, spoken at COP26, and we've spoken at a lot of um, big, the Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland, and we've been listening a lot as well. And in our listening, we have um, learned more and more about the Indigenous people who are the least responsible for changes in our right. climate, uh, and how how underrepresented they are at the decision making table. Um, so. You know, we really do uh, understand that we need indigenous knowledge to make sure the science and the local data feeds the research. So um, what we are doing at the end of July, we're going up to Cambridge Bay for two weeks. We'll be introduced to the elders and the local community. And our goal is to actually um, not do the citizen. I mean, they're the real citizen scientists are the Inuit, right? They've been living with the land observing. So our goal is to actually... um, have them collect the data and we will we will train them on um, the data collection process all the protocol and the understanding around uh, why that data is important Um, and we hope to um, to continue with our educational school outreach Mm -hmm. twice a Mm -hmm. month Um, uh, so after the end of july we're going to go back up there the following year for seven months and we'll be stationary there as support systems and we're wanting to just basically report out the stories of the people living uh, on the land and the small group that we'll have that will serve as uh, the community scientists and we'll share the stories of the local people um, with school kids around the Arctic. Yeah, and that you'll be in Cambridge Bay then as well. That's the plan, yeah. yeah. Amazing. But we are going to go, um, as they say, at the speed of empathy and the speed of trust. Yeah, lovely. You do a lot of outreach with schools and stuff and people can follow you how if they want to take part in this. Yeah, great. We have our all our social feeds. Um, everything is hearts in the ice uh, on our website. If you go there and sign up for our newsletter, we tend to share things through a monthly newsletter. And then what we have a schedule on our website as well, just on where we are, where we're speaking and what sorts of school calls we're hosting. So we really want to encourage people to get involved. We're just we're just two women 
have spent our lives um, so enriched by immersion in the natural world and we want to encourage not just all Canadians but people around the world to get out and uh, you know connect with your backyard or your local parks and uh, understand that we are just we all need to be stewards and protectors of the planet today it's you know we're living in a very changed time so if we can inspire people um, that's part of our job. That's that's why Hearts on the Ice exists. Fantastic. And I just have two more questions that I ask our guests, uh, especially of our explorers too. Is uh, is there a piece of gear or a good luck something or something that you bring with you on all your expeditions, something you rely on or you know, feel like it, you feel better when you have it with you? Mm, I think it might be, and I'm staring at it right now, I have a special knife that I always travel mm-hmm. with. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's a handmade knife, um, and it's got a nice leather pouch, and it's always on my safety belt. And you never know when you're going to need a good knife. <laughs> exactly. How long have you been carrying that around? Um, many years now. I don't know how long, but uh, it's been it's been a yeah. while. That's one piece. I also love a good headlamp. Yeah. No, there's a lot to be said for a good headlamp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't want the headlamp yeah. going out at the wrong moment. No. And can you describe for us a favorite place you have in Canada? Might be a happy place you go to in a mind place you just like to go to to relax or, you know, favorite spot in Canada? Yeah, that's a lovely question. Uh, I just love our country. Mm. Um, I have a, I just feel like uh, British Columbia is very, very special. There's a lot of sacred land here and uh, I find I find uh, a rainforest to be a most special place where I just nice to just wander in or just sit and and uh, listen. But uh, I love the rainforest in BC. Mm. There's there's some there's a richness to the smell of it, the earthiness of it. Yeah, no, mm. I hear that. It's so alive. You just have to inhale there and understand that wow we can't cut these down what are we thinking exactly well i talk about planting trees we Mm. just need to keep the trees we have i think is the that's right that's it david step one (laughs) great well listen thank you so much for coming onto the podcast oh and so you have a book hearts in the ice out where can people get that you can get it on our website and that'll just take you actually straight to amazon and you can purchase it off amazon it was just easier to have it hosted there so that we didn't have to do the shipping so thank you no no problem well thank you so much for coming on my pleasure thanks for having me look forward to reading the book and i look forward to hearing about uh, the next project when that's wrapping up too so hope you hope you'll come back thanks i'd love to and thank you for listening if you like this episode or this podcast please give us a rating and review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen We're all slaves to the algorithm in this podcasting universe, and the more good things are said about us, the more opportunities we get to reach a bigger audience. And remember also to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by ten voyageurs. For us, it means that Indian oral history is very strong. We flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 guides or so.